Anyway, um, we're going to do a quick recap. Last week we looked at uh, the story of Paul and Barnabas traveling across the island of Cyprus where they ended up standing before a Roman ruler. His name was Sergius Paulus. And he wanted to hear the gospel, right? And, and he ended up believing in Jesus Christ. But there was this, there was this guy, this sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, a.k.a. Elemus, who tried to keep him from believing and he opposed Paul and Barnabas, but the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul and temporarily struck him blind, which helped to solidify Paul and Barnabas as speaking for God. We talked about all that last week. At this point in the story, though, Luke, he is apparently back to recording events in a chronological sequence because you realize for a while there he was kind of doing a meanwhile back at the motel kind of thing. He was, he was kind of going back and forth between what was happening in one place and another. But here he's, he's starting to get into a chronological order again. Uh, and by the way, he's going to be joining Paul pretty soon. So it'll go from, from Paul to we, which is kind of neat. But anyway, um, he's, he's recording their progress from town to town. They're still preaching Jesus in the synagogues. And that's pretty much where we still are in today's text. But, um, and by the way, there's a lot of locations mentioned in the first few verses here. So um, if you're into geography, I can tell you the journey is likely mapped out in the back of your Bible. Um, if you don't have a paper Bible, shame on you. Um, what you ought to do is uh, you can just Google map of, uh, of Paul's missionary journeys, and, and this is the first one. Um, all three of his, his famous missionary journeys started out from Antioch, and they went around and came back. The first two ended at Antioch. The last one ended in Jerusalem. You could even argue there was a fourth missionary journey because he spoke to so many rulers as he was being you know, taken from place to place in chains. It's an awesome story. Anyway, so if you want to follow along on the map, that's the easy way to do it. Um, all right, before we dive in, I'm just going to ask that you bow with me, okay? Hey, Finn. Hey, buddy, I didn't know he was here. Good to see you, man. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Father, I, I pray uh, for the ability to make it through the message um, without, uh, really just kind of without folding in half. Um, I just ask, Lord, that, uh, that you will help each person here to be able to, to listen, Father, because this, this word, I know that this is your word. I know that Satan does not want it in the ears of your people. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will speak through this flawed vessel to other flawed vessels, God, that we might receive the word and it might take root and it might bear fruit in our lives. And we pray, Father, that, that there's not a single person that leaves this place unchanged in some way by the truth that they hear. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so starting in verse 13. This is Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Lots of P words there. All right, so, so Paul and Barnabas, they went by boat uh, to the island of Cyprus, and they preached at the capital, which was, it looks kind of like Salamis, but it was uh, Salamis, and they made their way west across the island, and then they went by boat again. They went north into the southwesterly region of what would today be called Turkey. And they were blessed to have the Apostle John with them during part of that time, although he felt called to return to Jerusalem where he was probably needed because, remember, his brother James had been executed. Uh, Peter's, remember Peter's arrest, a miraculous escape had happened already, so they probably needed John in Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas continued east into the country, and they came, uh, yeah, and they came to uh, the other Antioch. So there's one Antioch, and then there's Antioch, Pisidia. Uh, and on the Sabbath day, it says they went into the synagogue and they sat down. Um, now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but typically um, in Jewish culture, the teacher would sit while the students stood. It's different, obviously, in 
uh, in American culture, but that's how it was in the Jewish culture. So the fact that they sat down likely means that they were about to be reading a scroll, and then we see that that is the case. Um, and by the way, it, it seems Christians typically worshipped at this point on what Paul calls the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, but the Jews still considered Saturday as the Sabbath, the day that's holy to the Lord. And since Paul and Barnabas were trying to reach the Jews, they went at a time when they were likely to find a bunch of Jews worshiping together. So that's what they did. And, and I'm curious as to whether Paul was known there. Because if you remember this, he, he, was, he was still kind of resting on his reputation of being a zealous Jew. You know, he, was, he fought against Christianity at first. He persecuted the people of the way. And so it may have been that, that people still knew who he was and hadn't realized he'd been converted just yet. Don't know. Um, it's hard to know. But anyway, he was allowed by the rulers of the synagogue to read. So after reading from the law and the prophets, um, just pause right there for just a minute. Bear in mind, New Testament not been written yet, right? When this happened, we didn't have the New Testament as we have it right now. And so the Old Testament scriptures that the followers of the way, that the Christians had in common with the Jews, they were the books of the Old Testament. And yet there is plenty, there is plenty contained in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ revealing God's plan for his coming Messiah and the role that he would take upon himself for his people. So much so that the early Christians, they could simply point to Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, and it would lead other people to conversion. It's amazing. Anyway, so the Jews considered the first five books of the Old Testament, that was the law. Um, and there's a lot of history mixed in there. If you guys are reading through it right now um, with the Bible app, you see a lot of law, a lot of history. Uh, and then they considered the rest of the books, including the wisdom literature, like Psalms, Proverbs, all that, and all the other history books, like Judges and Ruth, they considered that the prophets, all right? So, so Paul and or Barnabas would have been reading from these sections of sacred scripture, uh, perhaps warming people up to the truth about Jesus that they were about to share. And, uh, and after reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, I find this really interesting because um, either they didn't know about Paul's conversion or else they were surprisingly open-minded, you know, to, to hear what it was that Paul had heard that was, that was different, what he knew. And so we should give him credit for that. But anyway, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand is probably just a gesture that means, hey, guys, listen up, said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And the following speech, which is going to be broken up into at least two sermons, uh, is a, a highly condensed story of God's people through the centuries. Beginning with the calling of Abram, all the way to the resurrection of Jesus. You know what? You know what? I'm, I'm going to do this right now. I'm going to do this right now. I have an alarm set to pray for Kathy Abner. You guys know who she is? She's a member of this congregation. She's going through a really rough time right now. And I didn't think to turn it off this morning, and maybe that's because we all need to pray. So let's pause just for a moment and pray for Kathy. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name for our sister Kathy. Not everybody here knows her, Lord, but many of us do. We thank you, God, for the strength that you have given her. We thank you that right now, even though she's feeling weak, Lord, that, uh, that she knows you and that she trusts you. And Father, we pray that you encourage her, fill her up with your Holy Spirit. Give her a greater uh, sense of, of your presence. Help her to have the faith to preach your word to others. We thank you that her sister Connie is with her right now. 
uh, caring for her, and we ask, Lord, uh, that you continue to take care of our sister. We pray that she feels encouraged, Father. Perhaps she's watching this morning, I don't know, but um, let her feel encouraged right now and, and feel the presence of brothers and sisters who are with her in spirit, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. But I will turn my ringer off. Sorry about that. It was off. That was weird. Thanks, God. Okay. Um, so that's why the title of, of today's message is Long Story Short. And today is part one of that story. While he leaves out a whole lot of detail, Paul briefly shares the history of the people of God. And he's sharing it with the people of God here from, from the beginning of the nation of Israel all the way up to the introduction of the Messiah. And then in the next week is part two. We're going to see where Paul gets really specific about Jesus Christ. Uh, but today we're going to look at, at his quick summary of the history of God's people. Um, and because it shows a whole lot about the character of God. It also shows us a whole lot about the character of people. Okay? Um, it's very interesting that you chose the scriptures you chose this morning. Um, brother, I, I think that, that was God's, God's will uh, for that. Um, Dennis was just spot on. We're, we're going to be in Exodus in just a few minutes here. Anyway, um, lost my train of thought. Uh, this, has, this has major application, what we're about to read, for God's people today, okay? So anyone who's in Christ Jesus today. It's only seven verses, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it all the way through once, and then we're going to go back over it a chunk at a time, and I meant to have that pulled up. I apologize. Hey, there we are. All right. Bless you. God bless you. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted hand, arm, excuse me, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. That's our text for the rest of this morning. There's a lot there. There's a lot more that's left out, obviously. But, but we know there's a reason the Holy Spirit led Paul to say the things that he did say here. And while his audience, they would have already been familiar, you know, with most of it, Paul still says it. I think it's because he wants to contextualize the Messiah within the Word for the sake of proving to his audience that Jesus really is the Christ. He really is Hamashiach, the, the, the Messiah that was to come. So we're going to take a quick tour here of God's relationship to his people as related by the Apostle Paul. So, first, the God of this people, this people, the God of these people, Israel, chose our fathers. This is important, okay? This is important, because right from the get-go here, it's a reminder that God's people were chosen from the beginning. Okay, God selected Abram, uh, who, who was, he was a, a moon-worshipping pagan at the beginning. He lived in Ur, you know, he, he was the person that God chose to start a whole new people. And his words to Abram are recorded uh, at the beginning of Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house 
to the land I will show you. I want you to notice the number of times the word you is here. He says, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, was this due to anything that Abram had done? No. No, it was all because God decided it was going to be so. He, he selected, or you might say elected, Abram. And then from Abram, he chose Isaac as the son of the promise rather than Ishmael. You remember that story? And then he chose Jacob rather than Esau. See, God's prerogative is to choose. And we are, we are not privileged to understand his reasonings except to know what his reasons aren't. Okay? In the book of Deuteronomy, God explains that, that his choosing Israel, he, he tells him, he says, it, it's not because of their size. It's not because of their morality. No, he says it's because of the love and the oath that he swore to their fathers. You know, 2,000 years later, almost, Judah, uh, excuse me, Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And today, we experience the same situation. You know, from, from, from our perspective, we choose the Lord, absolutely. We are not robots, okay? But we choose because he chose us before the foundations of the earth, according to Ephesians 1. So the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So what he's talking about here is that God absolutely blessed the people of Israel during these four centuries in Egypt. Okay, they went from about 75 people-ish, maybe it was 70, I forget, Craig probably knows, however many people came to Egypt, uh, and it became roughly 2 million people over the next uh, four centuries or so. And, and that was a fulfillment of a third of the promise that God had made to Abram, because he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, right? And it wasn't until the end, it was at least near the end of their time in Egypt, that Pharaoh began to use them as slave labor, you know, because even... Even uh, for the first several hundred years, they just got to proliferate. But then Pharaoh finally put them under bondage. Uh, and even while they're under bondage, God still caused the Israelites to, to flourish and grow stronger as a people. You know, uh, in Exodus 1, Moses wrote, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. By the way, I think that applies to Christians. If you look around the world, you will see the places where the church is undergoing the most stress, the most struggle is often where the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Look at Iran. The gospel is spreading like crazy. I think it was Tertullian who said, uh, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. Anyway, um, so, so God typically, I'm sorry, I, I gotta go back to this. And the Egyptians were in dread, it says, of the people of Israel. And then a few verses later it says, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. See, see, God blesses his chosen people in ways that he doesn't always bless everybody. And sometimes there's even, there's even adversity that comes along for the sake of growth. And other times he, he blesses his people by protecting them. You know, dur during the period of the plagues on, e on Egypt, you remember the first three plagues, everybody got a taste of. But around plague four, God said, you know what? I'm just going to let Egypt have these. And I'm going to keep Israel safe over here. And so they got to see the distinction between God's people and God's enemies. So as we looked at last week, um, God's discipline on his people is intended to be corrective. And sometimes, I know, it seems really harsh, right? But when that happens, it serves as an example for future generations of people. And we're going to talk about that later. But um, God will always bless 
his chosen people in many ways, and I think perhaps most poignantly with his presence. He blesses us with his presence. You know, we experience that today. We have the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit living in us, which is an incredible advantage that we have under the new covenant in Christ. They didn't have that in the Old Testament, but at least most of them didn't. But God's presence was with the nation of Israel, too. Paul continues, he led them with an uplifted arm. He led them out of it, out of Egypt. And God placed himself in the midst of his people as a pillar of cloud by day. You remember this, right? Pillar of fire by night. And he led them. God himself led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, out of oppression. And God's people, they're not just chosen and blessed, but we're also free. We're freed. God led his people out of Egypt with a pillar of cloud and fire, and he wiped out their enemies in miraculous ways. You know, he started, started with the plagues in Egypt. And I don't know if, if, if this is something that, you know, I think I probably learned this in Bible college, so maybe not everybody knows this. Uh, each plague that God did, it, it showed his superiority over one of Egypt's false gods. They had the god of the Nile, you know, they had the god, the frog god, they had the, it, it was all these different things that, that God was saying, hey, I win. <laughs> I'm superior over your, your false demon gods. So this culminates in the death of each of the firstborn males of Egypt while the Israelites were spared. They were spared through the covering by the blood of the lamb. A slain lamb. Pretty serious foreshadowing there, yeah? When Pharaoh finally agreed to let Israel go, his nation was already in ruins. But see, God... After God led them out, Pharaoh decided that he was going to chase after them, which ended in his own destruction as well as the death of every soldier in his army. And where did that event occur? Red Sea. At the Red Sea. You remember the story? We just looked at it earlier. God miraculously parted the sea, and the Israelites crossed on dry ground, it says. And then when the Egyptians chased them, uh, God threw them into confusion, knocked Wheels off chariots, he, he closed the waters of the sea, and then it says he swept the enemies into it, causing them all to drown, every single one. And Moses even wrote a song about it in Exodus 15. He wrote, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider. He is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God. And I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and all of his host. He cast into the sea. So, so this amazing miracle where the Lord freed his people from their enemies. This is a powerful historical picture of what God does for his chosen people today. Whenever we come to him in faith, we are freed from our slavery to sin. And Paul continues. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Uh, I think his choice of words is kind of funny. You know, he, he put up with them in the wilderness. In other words, he didn't completely erase their memory as a people from the face of the earth, despite how rebellious and how hard-hearted and how faithless they actually were. His people, guys, if you're reading through it right now, what was it, like 13 times he had to kill a whole bunch of them because they wouldn't stop rebelling? 13, 13 times! In that 40 wilderness years between the Red Sea and the Promised Land, they were sanctified 
under his sovereign hand. They were sanctified. Now, this process of sanctification that Israel went through, uh, it was similar but also very different from what we think of as sanctification under the New Covenant. Uh, and in my opinion, this is one of the most obvious ways here that God, uh, in the Old Testament, treated his people as a group, like en masse, in much the same way that he relates to individual Christians today. And I'm, I'm going to share a couple of examples. First of all, to be sanctified is to be set aside for a specific holy purpose, right? It's to be essentially consecrated. Twice in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses speaks the exact same words to Israel. One of them's in Deuteronomy 7, the other 14. I forget the exact verse. But twice, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So in this sense, God sanctified his people by giving them his law to make them distinct from the rest of the nations. But perhaps ironically, Moses was saying this to the children of the people that had actually left Egypt. Why? Because there's another sense in which he sanctified his people as a group. And it's not pleasant to read about uh, because they refused to trust and obey. You know, we read in scripture, he said, all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as your dead bodies will fall in the wilderness. I did. <laughs> That's pretty straightforward, and that's exactly what happened, because the people that he rescued out of Egypt and miraculously provided for, they completely refused to listen. They refused to heed his words. And on more than one occasion, they said, oh, yeah, we're going to do everything you say, right? You remember this? Oh, yeah, sure, Moses, we got you. We'll do whatever. No, 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 didn't happen. And because the people he rescued out of Egypt refused to listen, refused to heed, God finally caused everyone that was over the age of 20 when they left Egypt, except those two guys, to die in the desert. They didn't enter the promised land because of their rebellion. We even see that Moses dies in the desert. Now, I, I, I want to point this out very quickly. This is not part of my, my, my manuscript here, but I just want to share this. When Jesus is on the mountain for the transfiguration, who is standing next to him? Moses and Elijah says to me that even though he didn't enter the promised land, Moses is still going to be in heaven. Amen? So just bear that in mind. Just because God disciplines us, that doesn't mean that we are, uh, that we are not his children. In fact, we see in Hebrews 12 that God's discipline is a pretty solid sign that you are a child of God, and he cares enough to whoop your hiney sometimes. So I'm just going to say that. And that's why I should manuscript everything I say. Anyway, um, God often relates to us in a similar way that he related to his people, but instead of striking us dead when we disobey, he strikes our disobedience dead, and he gives us life. Think about that. I'm going to say that again. Instead of striking us dead, like he did in the wilderness to his people, God strikes our rebellion, our disobedience dead, and he gives us life. I think it's pretty cool. In an amazing and wonderful way, God's chosen people today 
undergo the death of our sinful flesh a, a little bit at a time, and God renews us in the image of Christ, and that's awesome. Anyway, uh, for those people that have reached adulthood during those 40 years of wandering in the desert, and for two old guys, Joshua and Caleb, God fulfilled another third of his promise given to Abram back in Genesis 12. He gave them a land for Abram's people. He gave him his land. Paul continues, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Remember all those, the, the Canaanite nations that ended with ites? You remember like the, the Hivites and the Jebusites and the stalactites and stalagmites or whatever, you know, all these. That God, God drove them out of the promised land, uh, sometimes supernaturally, other times just helping the Israelites to defeat them in war and, and wipe them out. And he did this, he was very clear, because of the wickedness of those nations, not because of the, the goodness, the moral superiority of the Israelites, Okay. And upon driving those nations out, God's design for his people was they, they would be established in their new home. They would be established in their new home, the promised land. He gave them homes. He gave them fields that they had never plowed. He gave them harvests that they didn't plant. He gave them barns that they didn't fill. You know, he provided a place where they could rest and enjoy his blessings in an environment of plenty and of peace. And all he asked of them was that they would continue in in trusting obedience. I mean, he even spells it out for them through Moses' parting words right before they entered the promised land. Deuteronomy 28.9, Moses says, The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if, and that's a big if, you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Now, unfortunately, the, the, the history of man in general, and Israel in particular, is that we're pretty terrible about doing what God says. I mean, if they had only continued to trust and obey, they could have continued to enjoy the blessings of God forever. That's what he said. But that's not what happened. Paul goes on. All this took about 450 years. 50. 450 years. At this point, uh, it seems that Paul's referring specifically to the time uh, from Israel moving to Egypt until his descendants entered the promised land. I want to just bear in mind how long this amount of time actually is. 450 years. That's half Tom's length. Of, no, I'm just sorry. Just kidding. That's, <laughs> you know, it, 450, okay, if I had been born 450 years ago at my current age, the Puritans wouldn't have gone across on the Mayflower. The Pilgrims wouldn't have come yet. Okay, that's a long time ago. All right? God is patient. He makes things happen on his timetable. All right, continuing. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with the story of the history of the nation of Israel, some of the most awful, harrowing stuff that you will ever read in your entire life happened in the book of Judges. And I'm not going to give you any spoilers except to say that twice in the book of Judges, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Not a good place to be. This is sadly what happens when God's people are only established temporarily. They end up judged. They end up judged. And this is kind of a tricky phrase here because we, we usually kind of attach a negative connotation to the concept of, of judgment. But here it's referring to God's means of trying to work with his people to get them to trust and obey him. You know, this, this is a group of people that were, they had hard hearts and stiff necks. And God just kept 
having to allow or even cause sometimes terrible things to happen to his people because they needed a course correction, right? And it was, it was the only way they'd turn to him for help. It was a pretty vicious cycle, and, and, and this is how the writer of the book of Judges explains it, okay? And after his people would walk in his ways for a little while, inevitably, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to those judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies, all, all by the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of, of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt even than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This is depressing. This is sad to read. And this happened over and over again. God would send them a deliverer that they would listen to for a while and reject. It's just like those convicts that can't stay out of prison. You know, it, or when people like you and me keep coming back to our sin like dogs returning to their vomit. Forgive that yucky picture, but it's Proverbs 26, 11. It's there. When will we learn? Anyway, so, so Paul kind of rushes on. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. The people just, they just couldn't bear to be different, right, from all the surrounding nations. God was their king. God himself was their king. But they rejected him in favor of having a human king because everybody else was doing it, you know. And so, because they were so adamant, God's people were accommodated by the Lord. Even though it wasn't ideal, he gave them a man to be their king. And, and the, the story leading up to this also is kind of depressing, actually. Uh, the prophet Samuel, who is Israel's last you know, judge in the pre-king sense, he told the people all of the reasons that it would be stupid for them to reject God's method of governing in order to be like all the other nations. But according to 1 Samuel 8, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Who's been doing it up to that point? God, right? Duh. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And most of us know how that went, right? Yeah, Saul started out okay. Things went south for him pretty quickly. He ended up an envious, bitter, haunted man who turned away from God and he led the nation astray. But see, the Lord wasn't done with his people yet. He hadn't given up on them. God caused King Saul and his heir to die in battle. And when he had removed him, Paul says, 
He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And with David, God, he wasn't just accommodating his people. He was showing them how good things could actually be under a godly leader. Was David perfect? No. Some, uh, yeah, got some, some, some skeletons in his closet. But he was repentant. He was truly a man after God's heart. He was also providing them not just with a godly leader, but with a prototype of the perfect king that was coming. And so through King David, God's people were shepherded rather than ranched. Now, in case you don't know the difference there, uh, ranchers drive cattle, right? I don't remember who I heard this from, but it was a long time ago, but it's really stuck with me. They drive them, you know, they, they get behind the cattle, they shout at them, you know, they, they ride herd on them, they, they, they push them from place to place, you know, uh, move them up, head them up, cut them up, ride them out, you know, I mean, you know, that's, rawhide, thank you, okay, so, ride them in, anyway, so shepherds, on the other hand, they get out in front of the sheep, and they lead the sheep, right, they don't drive the sheep, they lead them, they speak to them, they take them to, to greener pastures, they take them to still waters, Saul was a rancher. David was a shepherd. Psalm 78 tells us that the Lord chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. After following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Those are two things I pray for. Just so you guys know. Among the Old Testament kings, there was none greater than David. Despite a, a, a pretty glaring you know, one-off moment, um, David's heart was completely sold out for the Lord. And, and through his example, God was preparing his people for someone that was to come. And, and, and it is that which Paul jumps to next. Okay, A sentence which is our finishing verse today. It's our springboard, though, for next week. Okay, Verse 23. Of this man's, <clears throat> David's offering, offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is the ever-important final third of the promise to Abram, all the way back in Genesis 12. That a blessing through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed was going to come from him. It was, it was through Israel's Savior. Jesus. Yeshua. Yahweh saves. See, God knew from literally day one that we were not going to really trust and obey, at least not enough, not sufficiently. And after he chose, blessed, freed, sanctified, and established his people, both the nation of Israel and each individual Christian, God still knew that we are still going to stray. He knew that he would have to keep judging us. He would have to keep accommodating us. He would have to keep shepherding us. And he still knew we're still never going to trust and obey perfectly enough to meet his standard. And so, as a God that is both all-loving and all-righteous, he chose to meet his standard on our behalf. And he, he paid a terrible price to do it. Anybody familiar with Psalm 130? 
Most of you probably are, you just don't know it, but let's see if you recognize these words. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that I that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, but it doesn't end there. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all her iniquities. Church, listen, if, if you are one of God's people, then these are all things, all these, these, these things on the left, these are all things that you have experienced or are experiencing or will experience during your walk of faith in this life. But the greatest truth, the greatest miracle in all of this, friends, is that we're redeemed. We're redeemed. Purchased. By the blood of Christ. We're redeemed. We are fully reconciled by the blood of the Lamb to the Creator of the universe. And if you're one of God's people, awesome. But whether you are or not, I want you to think just for a moment what does this mean for you today? Where are you? Where, where does that leave you today? Are you one of God's people? Think about this. Are you one of God's people? If so, how do you know? Have you truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, how do you know if you've done that? Was it a little prayer you said 25 years ago, or did you just give lip service at some point? I mean, how, how do you know? Do you see as imperfectly as it will be you trying to trust and obey today? We know what the word says. Put your faith in Christ, it says. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. It says be baptized into Jesus. It says to, to walk in obedience, be a part of the body. I, I guess simply put, are you trusting and obeying. You know, what's that look like? Well, I hope that we're showing you what that looks like as imperfectly as it will be. Um, so this morning, if you, if you feel like you need to, to confess your faith in Christ for the first time or if you need to ask for prayer, whatever the case may be, I just want to encourage you uh, to take a moment because that's where the rest of your life starts is in that moment and come up and do what the Holy Spirit leads you to do.